This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, and welcome back to Elder Sign, a weird fiction podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Glenn McDormand. And I'm not Brandon Buddha. I'm Valerie Hoagland. Yeah, this is uh, this is fantastic, Valerie. I'm glad to have you on Elder Sign. I guess we should say first and foremost, Brandon is not going to be uh, joining us today. We're giving him the, <laughs> the week off here. Uh, but this is amazing. Valerie, you are my co-host on Lower Decks, our Star Trek podcast. We'll talk about why you're here in just a minute. But what this means is that Elder Sign now is the only show of the seven, I guess, that we do on the network where all four of the network hosts have appeared uh, at some point. And that's very exciting for me. I love the use of the verb appeared. It makes it seem very magical and also kind of weird. It has like a weird fiction vibe. I just appeared. Right. You are just this sort of uh, magical genie that appears in my headphones and, and talks to me. You're totally not just in my mind. I, I, I hope. We'll see if listeners actually hear your voice as well. I would have said Spectre, but I guess I'll take genie. <laughs> well, we are back a week early here on Elder Sign with a bonus episode that was specially commissioned by one of our Patreon supporters. And so what we are going to do today is use Valerie's expertise as someone who works in mental health care to talk about how mental health is depicted in weird fiction stories. And we're going to take a look at two specific stories, two stories that we've already covered on the show. And these, of course, are, are two stories that have dealt with madness and insanity, but one of which also shows us the field of mental health care in operation. I am very excited for this conversation. And before we get into exactly what titles we're going to be talking about, maybe it's worth telling you in who I am, in addition to person who really likes talking to Glenn about Star Trek. And <laughs> by talking to Glenn, I mean anyone who will listen, and that's mostly just Glenn. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm glad I can help. <laughs> uh, but for Elder Sign listeners who don't know, Glenn and I actually met in a medieval Latin class um, almost 10 years ago now. And that's because while Glenn is currently a scholar, I used to be a scholar of the Italian Renaissance. But about four years ago, transitioned to a career in mental health. So I uh, I have a master's of social work, and I work as a clinical therapist under a social work license here in New York City. We should also say, of course, right, that weird fiction is not really your bag. As we say all the time on Lower Decks, in fact, something you and I disagree with all the time on Lower Decks, is that the thing that you maybe go to Star Trek for the most is camp and optimism and lightheartedness. And that is not something that weird fiction is about. In fact, weird fiction is specifically the antithesis of that. And we've picked out some pretty intense stories that are full of despair and real horror here. So I'll be interested in, in, in seeing how that, uh, how that felt for you to have to read these stories, Valerie. But uh, why don't you tell the audience uh, what we're actually going to be talking about today? 
That's a very amazing point, Glenn, and very important to also orient listeners to my personality and view on the world. It's definitely often a stereotype of mental health professionals. That is often true that we're drawn to weird fiction like this or, you know, disturbing memoirs or, or things like that, right? That we have maybe a thicker skin for these kinds of things and find them interesting. Um, I am not that person. <laughs> um, I I do my work and I love it. And then I go home and I, I watch puppies on the internet uh, and Star Trek. So so my perspective is a little bit different. Um, but today I will be lending that perspective to two stories, The Insanity of Jones by Algernon Blackwood and The Frolic by Thomas Ligotti. And the plan is this. I'm going to offer a brief synopsis of each of these stories. I mean, right, it's been a very long time since we've covered them, and hopefully that will get us all on the same page. And then Valerie's going to talk to us about the mental health conditions that we see in the story, basically I'm going to ask Valerie to diagnose a fictional character here, and we'll talk about treatment plans as well. But then we'll also look at the way the writer depicts mental health in these stories. And really what I mean by that is that we're going to try to use these stories to access the cultural history of mental health, since we're going to be covering really almost a a full century here. And a lot has changed uh, during during the time that these uh, these two stories were written. I shall endeavor to take this all with levity, even though they are quite disturbing stories that make me concerned for multiple people involved. Um, And of course, like these are really serious topics, talking about violence and mental health, which is what we're about to do, um, is something that I I hope to do very delicately um, and with compassion. So I'm really interested to see what comes of the discussion. Right. And of course, these are fictional characters. These are people who writers have created and, you know, really dialed up to 11 for the purposes of telling a story. But before we do get into it, I suppose we should probably say that, of course, although you are here in your capacity as an expert on mental health, you are not dispensing actual uh, medical advice here on the air. This is uh, for entertainment purposes only. And on the note of entertainment purposes, let's dive right into The Insanity of Jones by Algernon Blackwood. Uh, Listeners to the show, of course, know I love Algernon Blackwood. His writing style is uh, something that really appeals to me. So The Insanity of Jones, which we covered a very long time ago, was published in 1907. And our protagonist in this story is naturally the Jones of the title. He is a clerk at a fire insurance company in England. He does his job well, and he is promoted regularly, but he doesn't receive any satisfaction or any joy from his work. And he also doesn't seem to have anyone in his life outside of work. And in part, maybe this is because he's moved around several times by the company. First, he's sent to Liverpool, then to Manchester, and then finally to London. And along the way, during his career, he develops a real hatred for the manager he works for, for his his boss. And, And this is someone whose promotions he himself is essentially following during the course of his career. Uh, and I just said hatred, I guess, but that might not even really be quite the right word. Uh, disgust might be a better word. And, and that's maybe something we can talk about as we, we get into his character. But eventually here, Jones begins to hallucinate. And in a restaurant in London, he has a fight club style conversation with someone only he can see. This is a deceased former mentor at work uh, who then explains to Jones that that he, that, that, that Jones, I mean, is the reincarnated soul of someone who was tortured during the Spanish Inquisition and that the manager is the reincarnated soul of his torturer. Moreover, on top of all of this, the powers that be have granted Jones an opportunity to claim justice. 
And that word is really important in the story here. He's going to be permitted to claim justice by killing the manager here in this world. And so Jones then spends several months training with a pistol. He he simulates the circumstances under which he will kill the, the manager at their work site. And then after he's done all this training, he goes into work and he shoots the manager in their office in front of their co-workers. And so this whole story culminates in an episode of workplace gun violence. This, I think, remains the most disturbing story that we've read for the, the podcast, I think, for real obvious reasons, and that the horror of this story is something that is actually mundane, something that has the potential to affect us living our real lives, right? This is not some old one from outer space or from another dimension. This is a real a real thing that could affect us in our real lives. I will say that of the two stories that we read today, I I enjoyed this one very much more um, in terms of my ability to just kind of be immediately drawn into it and taken somewhere with the writing style and to have this like, yeah, eerie sense of being convinced um, that this world exists for this person, uh, which was a very, it was, it was very, odd to read because not only was I very convinced that this world existed, I was also confused all the time, which is exactly in line, I think, with us kind of being in the shoes of the main character. Um, And it's fantastic that a piece of writing could do that, especially from the first paragraph. Yeah. One of the things that we should say here, too, is that Brandon and I, when we did this story, we came down pretty hard on the idea that there is actually no fantastical element to the story, that that Jones really is just suffering from some kind of mental health problem, that he's not actually genuinely seeing this former mentor, that he's not really the reincarnated soul. All of that is in his mind only, though there are other people who have read this story as if the the sort of supernatural, the fantastical element is real. But certainly for our purposes here today, we're going to take the tack that it's not real, that this is all just in the head of Jones. It's right there in the title, right? This is a story about the insanity of Jones. It's almost not about Jones himself. It's about the insanity of Jones. What are some of the things that you notice about Jones and his condition here, Valerie? I guess this is where I'm just prompting you to sort of diagnose this fictional character who we only have access to here through uh, the things that, that Blackwood has chosen to, to show us. But, but you know, if he were a patient who, uh, who walked in to see you, what would you have to say about him? Yeah, thinking about whether the fantastical elements of this story are are fantastical or not is actually something that's really cool about the story. And I, I maybe thirty percent expected that we, I would get to the end, and and rather than having the ending that that we do have, um, that is a very real um, instance of violence, I was thinking maybe we get to the end of this story, and it turns out everything is right. And we learn that other people are also seeing this and this is a real thing. And some fantastic beast or person or entity comes and explains this to everybody. And it turns out that Jones was not the insane one the whole time. Um, It's that he was, he did have clairvoyance and he was seeing something that others were not. I could see that being a direction the story could have gone in. 
Yeah, you say 30%, but I, I feel like it's it's 50-50 in the genre, whether or not the things are going to turn out to really be true. And of course, I think there is some ambiguity in the story that was meant to prompt exactly that kind of conversation, the kind of conversation Brandon and I had. But let's let's dig in on, on Jones here. So from your perspective, what do you see about his mental health here? Yeah. So the first thing that jumps out to me, and, and I haven't read Blackwood before, so I, I'm going to be very interested for your opinion on this, but the first three paragraphs are difficult to read in a very particular way. Um, I might call them odd or eccentric. Um, Things are connected, but in a way that isn't necessarily how I would connect them, both through thought and word. Is this an experience that you had reading this story, Glenn? Is this common to Blackwood? Yeah, this is a real trope, I think, of of Victorian and Edwardian English literature in in general. Uh, in fact, I would say Blackwood actually has this pretty well toned down here compared to things that Poe is doing two generations previously. But this idea of starting off the story with some kind of grand proclamation, uh, some sort of big observation about the way that the world, the way that the universe functions, and then showing us a story or give, telling us a story, I should say, that's going to illustrate that point. And this story does have this really fantastic, really wonderful opening line, right? That adventures come to the adventurous and mysterious things fall on the way of those who, with wonder and imagination, are on the watch for them, right? And then goes on to say that, you know, most of us don't have that. But look, here's a story about someone who does. Well, even if you look at these first two paragraphs, they're both one sentence long. (laughs) They go on. They have a confusion to them from their length. But there's something really cool in the beginning of the story with the first three paragraphs that's almost like we're learning there are three types of people in the world. The first kind are those who lack a spirit of adventure or the adventurous and go about their daily lives like unbothered by the fact that there might be mysteries to the universe or fun things to discover or disturbing things to discover. The second person is the one who like has some awareness of that, uh, but can maybe make sense of it and go about their daily lives um, because they don't totally know what's happening. They're just like, oh, maybe something weird could happen in the world. And the third person, who is Jones, is absolutely certain that there are dark forces afoot and that the world that we live in is not as it seems. Right. And that is not a good way to actually be living your life, right? (laughs) I mean, it's a way. (laughs) <laughs> um, it doesn't sound entirely pleasant, though, as we learn multiple times throughout the story, it does appear to give him a comforting certainty about the world, which I do lack. But so aside from like the way that even just the writing is a little bit odd and eccentric, and, and those those words I think are going to come back later, um, one of the the first things that I notice is this aspect of certainty. So this character believes he knows something about the world that we don't know. And that he is kind of at the center of whatever that thing is. Um, There's a grandiosity involved or a self-interest involved in how, how his perspective on this otherworldly stuff is being formed. Well, and the way Blackwood introduces us or really shows us what is going on inside of Jones's mind or the way that he's existing in the world in in an unhealthy way is to 
one, to kind of dole this out to us in small doses, to give us just small snippets of information, right? We start with Jones in this kind of mundane existence. He's a good worker. He's maybe a little bit unhappy, but seems mostly fine. And in fact, because he knows that he's got this sort of specialness about him, he's able to distance himself from the fact that he has a boring job and coworkers he doesn't like and still go on in his life. But then gradually Blackwood dials this up further, right? Eventually taking us all the way to 11, of course, to show us that there are hallucinations here that begin to to happen. So as you're going through this story, Valerie, how are you, how, how is maybe your diagnosis of him changing through throughout? And then maybe we can talk about sort of the whole picture and, and what you think is going on and, you know, how a condition like this might be treated. So I this is interesting because this is an exercise uh, that we would do a lot in school and that I, I almost wonder what it would have been like to have brought this to class. It would have been an interesting assignment <laughs> in the class where we learn how to diagnose. Um, we would get like little snippets of, of an assessment, basically something that tells us about the person and then have to go about the process of attempting to diagnose them and coming up with alternatives or what might be the caveat or what else do we need to know here? Uh, what section of the diagnostic manual are we in? So this was actually a, a really fun exercise for me in that sense. And it involves like having a general starting point maybe and then sussing it out, moving back and forwards and thinking through alternatives as you go. So that's how I approach the story. It's probably also worth mentioning that Mental health diagnoses are helpful to a point. Um, there's a lot that we don't understand. The way that they're categorized changes um, every 10 to 20 years with new versions of the diagnostic manual. We're, we're on the fifth one now that came out in 2013. And the diagnostic manual that I'm using, the DSM-5, is different than what a lot of the world uses, um, which is another system that relies on um, – international classification of diseases codes from the World Health Organization. Um, so in some ways, this is a very American perspective. And these diagnoses, too, have a you know cultural perspective as well, because they come from a Western medical model. So, you know, this is all to say that this is in good fun and nothing I say is with certainty. And I don't even necessarily um, always subscribe to the fact that any particular diagnosis is a certainty, but rather one way of describing something that's happening in an attempt to help people. Right. And, and and Jones here in this story seems like maybe he has a lot of different things going on. And, you know, I don't know that Blackwood was, you know, he did certainly didn't have your type of training and wasn't setting out here to do an accurate depiction of someone with a, a precise and specifically uh, diagnosable mental health condition by the standards of, you know, the Edwardian period or anything like that. So as you say, this will be a fun exercise. Uh, certainly, I'm looking forward to hearing what you have to say about the the conditions, about the sort of diagnosis of Jones here. Yeah, it's pretty amazing how well what you just said and this story maps on to a lot of ways that we would diagnose different mental health disorders now. The elements are all there. It's just that over time, we change how we classify them, how we talk about them, which symptoms we cluster together to create a diagnosis or not. Um, and, you know, the easiest, I think, entry point to understanding 
how significantly our our knowledge and thinking about diagnoses can change over time is is the idea that until not that long ago homosexuality was a diagnosable mental disorder right so these things can really change a lot so the very first thing that i was thinking as i was uh reading was psychosis and maybe that sounds obvious to say to you glenn that there's <laughs> a, a psychotic element but that there's only a specific there's only a certain set of types of things where psychosis is present so that really did help me narrow into something um and my very first thought was something that uh, most people probably haven't heard of before uh, i wonder if you have glenn which is called schizotypal personality disorder no so i have not heard of this before though you know schizo i know from schizophrenia but yeah what is this yeah, so there are a lot of schizophreniform disorders so that have different elements of the things that you would know as hallmarks of um, psychosis, basically. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to tell you not too much about schizotypal personality disorder because I will tell you more later um, because it is both my first thought and I think my final thought, but I had a lot of other thoughts in between. But the reason this came to mind first uh, is – is the oddness and the eccentricity of the character and the way that they are speaking, which is a hallmark of this type of personality disorder. And personality disorders are highly contested um, because how we decide how they're grouped and which characteristics go with what uh, changes a lot over time. And also, it's very common for a person to have more than one personality disorder uh, because there are so many overlapping features. So it's difficult to distinguish between them. It's difficult to see if somebody might have more than one. People contest whether or not personality disorders are even actually a thing the way we think about them now. Um, so it's it's a particularly messy kind of diagnosis to understand. Let me interrupt you there, Valerie, because you just used the phrase personality disorder, which I'll, I'll confess is a term that I have heard probably on Law and Order or something like that. But I'm not sure I actually really quite know what that means. We're also not totally sure what it means um, <laughs> as a mental health community. But I, what I what I will do is I'll read you the definition um, from the DSM-5, and you will see how easy it would be to to poke holes or to be like, oh, wait, how exactly do we figure this out? Um, so a personality disorder is an enduring pattern of inner experience and behavior that deviates markedly from the expectation of the individual's culture, is pervasive and inflexible, has an onset in adolescence or early adulthood, is stable over time, and leads to distress or impairment. So those things at the end, uh, when it started happening, how long it's been happening for and how much it affects the life of the person, those are three things that get added to every diagnosis. A lot of diagnoses require information about exactly how long something has been happening for, um, to what degree, and how much it disrupts a person's life. And those are three things that we don't get to know in the story. So we're just kind of going to shove those to the side. Yeah, that's really interesting because the the bulk of the story, the real plot of the story only happens really a few months, less than a year towards the end. But we do get given information about a full decade of Jones's life where we're told that he's a good clerk and is getting all these promotions, but we don't have a lot of access to his interiority in those early years. So it's unclear to us 
at what point he he really started developing this disorder, I guess. And and certainly, though we can say, though I do think we can track when he started hallucinating, that it really is only within this last year of the story. So it's not, the hallucinations at least are not something that he's had with him since adolescence or early adulthood. Yeah. And I think hopefully that rang, that made sense to you when you think of Jones and her experience and behavior that deviates from expectations, pervasive and inflexible, right? Um it's a very vague way of describing what's happening, um, but an important one. And personality disorders come in three what are called clusters. So they're basically different types of personalities. disorders are grouped into uh, categories of personality disorder that have some sort of similar feature. So there's cluster A, which are the odd or eccentric clusters. So that, that's why that word, this, this is what immediately came to mind when I started reading the story. Um, and those personality disorders... Uh, include paranoid personality disorder, schizoid, and schizotypal personality disorder. Um, I think even just from the the titles of those things, not knowing how they're differentiated, you would probably be able to tell me, Glenn, that we're in cluster A. Right. Yeah, that seems pretty clear here. Um, And then... Cluster B, which will be important later, uh, are the dramatic, emotional, erratic ones. So antisocial personality disorder, narcissistic personality disorder. And then cluster C are, are anxious ones, so obsessive compulsive personality disorder and things like that. So we're, we're, I feel pretty firmly that we there's psychosis happening and that we might be in cluster A. But where I get a little bit thrown off is on, you know, not that far from the very beginning, we learn that he dissociates or might dissociate. Um, We have this line, for in the region, he pictured himself playing the part of a spectator to his ordinary workaday life, watching like a king the stream of events, but untouched in his own soul by the dirt, the noise, and the vulgar commotion of the outer world. Right. There's this clear sense there that he just doesn't think that the real world is the real world world. And this is how he justifies to himself that even though he has this perfectly mundane life and maybe isn't all that special in the regular world, he is in fact actually special. He has this secret specialness that other people don't know. And he seems to take some real satisfaction, not just out of having the specialness, but of the secretiveness of it as well, right? That this is something he knows that other people don't, that in some way he's not just special, he's better than. And he, throughout the story, makes frequent reference to the fact that there are two of him or might be two of him. I wonder how you and Brandon read this. This is not something we really picked up on when we covered it. We we didn't really talk about the fact that he has this as a dissociation. Uh, we talked about this more uh, in terms of a, a sort of um, work-life balance, actually, is I think really where we went with this. We looked at this story largely from the perspective of, of stressors of modern civilization. Yeah, that's a really, really interesting way of thinking about it. Here, I think it's important to bring up dissociation and this idea that there are are two of him, right? And that there are two of other people even sometimes, right? That people flip in in between um, versions of themselves or that he has this like daily person and then this person that exists like at home or in his dreams. Um, because what I would like to do is rule out something called dis- disassociative identity disorder, which is what we now call what you know as multiple personality disorder. 
And this is like, God, talk about things that are contested. Like if I were to name one thing that a lot of mental health professionals would agree might not actually exist, um, it's dissociative identity disorder. Um, it, it is highly contested um, and commonly thought of as the result of trauma, where you have a trauma early on to protect yourself from the trauma, you you separate yourself from it and you kind of create two distinct personalities or two distinct parts of yourself, a person that or character that maybe experienced and remembers that trauma and then other personalities that that do not and you know there can be more and more um from from there um but that's like how we try to think about this but i'm going to read you a little bit about dissociative identity disorder and i'm going to ask you to tell me if you think it fits i think we can rule it out so it is a disruption of identity characterized by two or more distinct personality traits which may be described um as an experience of possession The disruption involves marked discontinuity in sense of self and agency, accompanied by related alterations in mood, behavior, consciousness, memory, perception, uh, cognition, and sensory motor functioning. Um, This also has recurrent gaps in, in the recall of everyday events or important personal information. I don't feel that that is right for Jones. What do you think? I agree with you. I don't think that that describes what's happening for him at all. We don't really see any of these gaps or something like that at, at, at all, right? This is this is a guy who hates his job, right? <laughs> yeah, and he remembers perfectly well, it seems, most things. In fact, he ha- he remembers too much. He remembers 400 years of 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 his past <laughs> lives, right? Um and it is interesting, though, to think about sensory motor functioning, because one piece of the story that we we don't get, unless you remember something I don't, is very physical descriptions of him and how he moves through the world, which would actually be very important diagnostically, especially if we're thinking about psychosis. No, the only real things that we get about Jones's physicality really is in the the training montage, right, where we're, we're told that he's practicing with this pistol over a period of months and gets very good at it. But that's all we really know about his physicality, the, the sort of materiality of him as a as a body. That's a wonderful observation. So actually, we know that he can handle a, a a weapon that requires precision and stability pretty well, which tells us something about his physical state, right? Um, he He's not shaking. Um, he's able to concentrate on a physical activity for a long period of time. Um, if, he, if we are to believe he actually does become good at doing this. And given the last scene where he sh- shoots his manager with quite a lot of precision um, multiple times, I think that I totally buy that. So I'm glad we are on the same page, but because there's a dissociative element to it, I felt like I, in my brain, I had to explore like, okay, could this be happening? But you know, Glenn, you mentioned hallucinations earlier. um, And it might be worth talking about what hallucinations and delusions are. Um, I wonder what you might think about those words from a non like clinical perspective. Yeah, right. Exactly. I think for me, hallucination is something I only know through literature. As far as I know, I've never experienced a hallucination. When I get this in literature, right, what it means is seeing something that's not there. I suppose also sometimes it's hearing something that's not there. I don't know. There's probably going to be some weird fiction story Brandon and I cover at some point where it's smelling something that's not really there, <laughs> right? But it's it's uh, it's sensing something that's not really there is what I would describe as a hallucination. And I would probably describe delusion more as believing something that's not true. That's that's exactly 
That's exactly correct. So hallucinations are some sort of perceptive experience that happens without an actual external stimulus, right? So you smell a thing that's not there. You see a thing that's not there. You hear a thing that is not actually making noise. Um, and typically they, they're visual or auditory, um, though they they could also be in the form of smell, though. <laughs> that, that's a new one to me, too. I'm sure. I'm sure it happens. Um, and delusions are about having fixed beliefs, fixed beliefs that that do not change, uh, even if there is conflicting evidence. And they come in lots of different types, like delusions that you are being persecuted or delusions that um, other people doing something is somehow a reference to you. Like that that person over there just moved their hand to the left. That clearly means that, you know, they're talking about my mother or whatever. That's a very simple example. Um, grandiose delusions. So where you believe that you are exceptional, you are special, you are at the center of something. Um, and there are even erotic or romantic delusions where you believe everybody or certain people are in love with you. <laughs> um, so, but I think even just saying that I, I there's a referential does it there are referential delusions there are grandiose delusions and persecutory or paranoid delusions in this story uh, that feels clear to to me yes absolutely right there's definitely delusion here now that you've put it that way i can i can clearly see that that's the case right that part of what's going on here is that jones thinks that everything is about him and maybe it's not right yeah he's at the cent- everything is about him for hundreds of years on repeat right and and I get the sense that maybe if we're being generous, the world that he's or the the belief system within these delusions that he has constructed allows for the fact that everybody is special in this way that all of us maybe have a couple people over the last four hundred years who continue to get reincarnated together and stuck in some sort of important web, and we're just learning about the web that has him at the center. Right. Even even though there are these two other people who are wrapped up in this, right, the story is clearly not from their perspective. And it's not even just that the story is not from their perspective. It's that the whole metaphysics of this is only from Jones's perspective and for Jones's benefit. And I think this is really important, right? The whole crux of this is that the, the powers that be have decided that Jones has been treated unjustly in the past. And so they now have arranged things, organized things so that he can reclaim his justice, though vengeance is probably the better word to use here. So that even the supernatural powers that control the universe are doing things for his benefit and on his behalf. And everyone else is just a a side character in that drama. Right. So persecution and grandiosity, which is exactly what you just said. And as you move through the story, I feel like diagnostically Blackwood's trying to throw me off because he keeps giving me this uh, this multiple personality stuff. He talks about how this new part of himself amounted almost to another personality. And then not that long after that, literally the line, it was, in fact, really a case of dual personality. <laughs> 
<laughs> right, right. Well, there, there's a section here that I, I actually wanted to, to read at, at, at some point while we're talking about this, and in part because it's not something that had jumped out to me when Brandon and I originally covered this story, but rereading it from this perspective, we get this this line here. I'm going to do some elision here, uh, as Blackwood sometimes needs. He can be a little wordy, was a complaint Brandon had about this story back when we covered it. But we're told here by the narrator that the manager was coarse, brutal, almost a savagery, without consideration for others, and as a result, often cruelly unjust to his helpless subordinates. And then we're told, but to a private secretary like Jones, who did his duty regardless of whether his employer was beast or angel, and whose mainspring was principle and not emotion, this made little difference. There's something here, right, where where Jones is trying to shut himself off at work and then only allowing himself to have emotions when he's not at work that certainly cannot be healthy. No, (laughs) although there is a protective mechanism there, right? So here's the thing about people and and their brains is we're doing our best, (laughs) really. We're, (laughs) We're really doing our best all the time. And all of the things that we're talking about today, personality disorders, um, in particular, like, and as I mentioned with dissociative identity disorder, we were pretty certain these things come from trauma, right? That these are our brain's responses to to trauma. And, you know, genetics and brain chemistry can be brought in to some extent. But these are things that happen because horrible things happen to us um, a lot of the time. But really, when horrible things happen to us, we do our very best to protect ourselves from them. And it seems like that's what Jones is doing. Imagine if if the person he is at home with all of these emotions and thoughts came to work, he wouldn't have a job. Right. I, I certainly don't know how I would deal with this, right? With this description of, of course, brutal, almost a savagery boss, you know, with no consideration for others who who were, were told yells at his subordinates all the time and, and himself almost is two different people, right? We're told that he's actually very good at business because he can be smooth with clients and, and manage their money well and so on. But then to his employees, he is dreadful. He is, you know, an awful boss, the sort of character, I don't know, we get in in rom-coms i guess right uh, and, uh, and i don't i i would just quit this job right but that's maybe a freedom that i might have here in 2019 that jones would not have had in 1907 that you don't just quit a job there's no cultural support for saying yeah my boss is awful so i quit that job you don't do that here in edwardian england right so he just has to have a a, a stiff upper lip right and 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 do his best to deal with this and it doesn't work for him. Right. But also he'd be classified as as insane or mad um, and and put somewhere else, right, where people don't have jobs. Um, so at, at this time, in this place anyway. Um, so, you know, there are a couple other things that, that come up that are really interesting. I find it interesting that the story mentions multiple times that Jones doesn't eat. Um and it's not uncommon for there to be between all of the things that I'm talking about um, and eating disorders, what we call a comorbidity, which just means you have both of them. If something is comorbid, it means so if I have depression comorbid with anxiety, that just means I have both depression and anxiety. Um, and 
a lot of people who struggle with mental health have more than one diagnosis by the system that we use to diagnose. Um, and eating disorders can go, go along with this. I wish we had more information about exactly what is going on with him and his relationship to food. But there are a lot of hints that something is going on. Well, there's a kind of bodily abnegation that he has in general, right? Where he goes home from work, he doesn't have stuff in his home, there's no comforts, and, and this is where he's he's choosing not to eat so that he can go live in this other realm, we might say, you know, exist in his, his fantasy world or something like that. And so, you know, he's sort of just trying to deny, right, his bodily existence here in the real world, and some of that involves eating. Yeah. Um that's an excellent that's an excellent way of thinking about it. So I think I'm I'm getting closer to being able to explain what diagnostic uh picture I have landed on, but let me ask you an important question, Glenn. How long do you think his psychosis, his active psychosis of delusions and hallucinations has been happening as we get from this story? So my guess, I guess we certainly know that it's at least a year because that's maybe the time frame in which we get the hallucination and then get the violence. And then we know that there's build up to that. But my sense is that this is something that has not been going on for the entire time that he's worked for this company. In fact, we're, we're given something of the onset. We're not told specifically when this is, but it is fairly early on in his career, I suppose, right, where we get this description of him seeing the manager for the first time. Uh, years and years ago, and just knowing that there was something wrong with him, knowing that the manager was his enemy and being filled with disgust uh, at this at this person. So uh, I'd say several years, but probably not his entire life. See, now th so now this is very important information, and I will try to briefly say why. There are three things, three separate disorders that um, most people would think of as schizophrenia. Um, and what they are is they're schizophrenia, but on different timelines. So the symptoms of schizophrenia are the following. You must have two or more of the following present for a significant portion of time during a one-month period. Um, so delusions, hallucinations, disorganized speech, frequent derailment or incoherence, grossly disorganized or catatonic behavior and negative symptoms. Um, so like not having a lot of emotional expression, not being very interested in engaging in the world, those kinds of things. Um, and I think we can clearly say that Jones has two or more of these things. Would you agree? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> so then what, what the tricky part is, is time. So there's something called brief psychotic disorder, which is all of those symptoms, but it's only for uh, between one day and a month. Then there's schizophreniform disorder, which is between one month and six months um, that this has been going on. And then schizophrenia, which is um, you have been impaired in this way between six months and, and a year um, or more. Um, and that's really the only thing that separates those three classifications. Oh, that's really fascinating because, right, this is not, uh, I guess, a blip, right? This is something that he has been living with for a very long time and something that seems to be continuing to even, well, clearly is continuing to to escalate for him. It's something he's he's getting deeper and deeper into. Yeah. And so 
I think that here is my armchair whimsical diagnosis that has no basis in reality and ought not to be taken seriously, please, <laughs> um, for ethical reasons. Uh, uh, and yes, this is all good fun. But it, I would say that this person, at the beginning of the story, I would have diagnosed him with schizotypal personality disorder. And I'll say more about that because I, I know I, I left that as a cliffhanger. Um, and that that and that schizotypal personality disorder is what we call pre-morbid, basically just meaning thing that comes before the onset of psychosis, um, pre-morbid to a schizophrenia-like disorder that I will not name based on not having information about timeline. Um, so there was this like pre-onset of psychosis state where he was quite odd and eccentric, and and then the active psychosis with delusions and hallucinations and incoherence and all these other things we we see throughout the story. And this is something that we could diagnose him with having, that we would see him having even separate from the the turn towards violence at the end, right? That even without that turn, uh, he has this type of disorder, he has this condition, and, and should clearly seek some treatment for it in order to to return to having a, a good a good life but the story does turn to violence he he turns to to violence here uh, how does that change or how does that affect your your diagnosis or really maybe more broadly just how do you see that from your perspective as a mental health professional yeah i think it's really i think it's dangerous i think it's really dangerous water to tread because very often people who live with these things, we're made to fear them, right? Um, you see someone who is acting strangely, and you become afraid of violence, or of what might happen. And the extremely vast majority of the time that that is not actually a concern. Um, you're just looking at a person who needs help sees the world differently, is likely under the influence of some sort of substance or potentially other medical condition. Because God, if you thought that there was this whole other dark world where 400 years ago, somebody tortured you and you have to bring them to justice, you'd drink to try to make that stop. Right? Um, again, people, we just try we try to help ourselves. We try to protect ourselves. Um, so one thing, I know this is like, I guess what has to happen in the genre of stories we're reading, but one thing that I don't enjoy about about either of the stories we read today is the way mental health is, is linked with violence, um, which is something that is not statistically often the case and certainly does not form part of the diagnostic picture. There's no diagnostic criteria here that, uh, and then one becomes violent. And the violence here, and especially the gun violence, gun violence in the workplace really was what jumped out to me when I read this story the first time. It jumped out to Elizabeth, my, my wife, as as well, in, in part because, of course, we both work at universities, which have a much higher incidence of workplace gun violence than other types of workplaces do, but also because this just seems awfully early for this, that when I think about the history of not even just maybe workplace gun violence, but public gun violence in this sort of domestic violence setting, I guess maybe we might say. This seems to be something that happens after the Second World War and, and maybe even really starting in the 70s and, and 80s and is obviously, well, maybe not obviously, but seems anyway to be something that has increased since that time, that I was just shocked that this was something that Blackwood was at least imagining back in 1907, back before the First World War, let alone you know, before the Second World War. But I don't really know anything about the actual history of workplace gun violence. 
I don't either. I will say, you know, the story comes at a really interesting time because it was like the turn of the 19th century to the mid 19th century that like uh, that psychiatry as a profession separate from like doctors who treated madness um, began to be to be born and thought about. Um, So 1907 is a really interesting moment historically in terms of like how people are thinking about these things Um, and to bring weapons into the picture. It makes it all the more interesting. But if our listeners know anything about this, I would love to learn. Yeah, I'm certain that there are historians and and maybe scholars of other professions as well who have looked at the history of exactly this this type of phenomenon. I mean, it seems like something we really, just from a public policy standpoint, actually need to to know a lot about you. And I just don't happen to have that expertise. So yeah, we'll look for some help from listeners for that on the on the forum. And I don't know, maybe we'll we'll figure out what reading we we could do for that, and and we could do a follow up episode or something like that. But uh, we are nearly done here with the insanity of Jones. So final thoughts before we move on to the frolic. Yeah, I guess I should actually say what tell people a little bit about what schizotypal personality disorder is. And I'm just going to read the the criteria here and maybe Glenn get some of your of your reactions of if you think it sounds right for this this person um at least as as something that might be premorbid or as something that um might have been a part of of this person's personality. But Schizotypal personality disorder is defined as a pervasive pattern of social and interpersonal deficits marked by acute discomfort with and reduced capacity for close relationships, as well as by cognitive or perceptual distortions and eccentricities of behavior. Um, And I will read the distortions and eccentricities of behavior here in a moment, but this is something we didn't talk about was relationships for Jones. And this was a big part of why I came to this diagnosis as well, because we are told multiple times, like an absurd amount of times, too many times, like there are a lot of things in this story that are repeated that don't need to be repeated, um, which give you an idea of kind of the, the the mental state and the mind of the main character. But we hear a lot how he doesn't like to socialize and he doesn't like to join clubs or be around people. And he just goes home and goes al- and is alone. Yes. And this was really the tack that Brandon and I took here was looking at the way that high modernity and industrial capitalism do this to us, that they they isolate us from places where we could have community and in particular make our job that we go to be the the keystone of our identity, whether we want it to be or not. And if you don't like your job and maybe don't like the people at your job, it can be really hard to have other relationships outside of your job, especially in the case of Jones, when you have been moved around. And you're not able to put down roots in any particular community. And that was something that really stood out to us here, that in some ways this is a story about what happens when you're isolated by the system, the the, the job system that we have here around 1907 and, and also still today. And that's an excellent point because you basically just explained why we have to think about culture because – how do you tell the difference between somebody who has something internal and individual going on that encourages them to withdraw from the world or a culture that facilitates such a way of being, right? And one of the best answers we have for that is like, how many other people in your culture do it that way? <laughs> and, you know, uh, like, is it markedly different from what other people do or is it accepted by your culture? And that can often be the line between a disorder and not a disorder, even if you're looking at the same set of behaviors. 
Yes, absolutely. Right. And I think for, for me and for, for Brandon, though, he's not here to, you know, agree or disagree with this, but I'll put words in his mouth anyway. You know, he and I were thinking about this from our shared experience, having worked in the same workplace and, uh, you know, having worked a pretty stressful job that required long hours and, and unhealthy hours as well. And, observing both in ourselves, but also in coworkers, a a real tendency to be isolated outside of work, almost as a response to the stressors of the workplace that then carried with it its own types of stressors, that there actually wasn't a healthy way to deal with the stresses of the workplace that then actually exacerbated the stresses of that workplace. I mean, I'm talking about uh, the work we did in the military is what I'm, I'm talking about here. And and so that was something that really resonated with us here and made us empathize or allowed us perhaps to empathize with, with Jones. But Jones here clearly needs some intervention. He needs some, some help. There definitely were some places along the way where he could have stopped and certainly today have gotten some kind of treatment for this, right? Yeah. So I'm just going to quickly uh, tell you the rest about, about this thing and get kind of a, yeah, that sounds right, or a, hmm, I don't know. Um, so the, the other uh, criteria that are that are present for this personality disorder are ideas of reference, odd beliefs or magical thinking that influences behavior and is inconsistent with cultural norms. So superstitiousness, a belief in clairvoyance, which comes up multiple times in the story, you literally the word clairvoyance, um, telepathy or a sixth sense, unusual perceptual experiences, including bodily illusions, odd thinking and speech, suspiciousness or paranoid ideation, um, behavior or appearance that is odd, eccentric, peculiar, lack of close friends other than first degree relatives or maybe the people you work with, Um and excessive social anxiety that isn't about familiarity, but is about paranoid fears uh, rather than a social anxiety where you're worried people are going to judge you negatively. Um, you have paranoia related to other people. And uh, this sounds like Jones to me. <laughs> yeah, he's got all of this or at least almost all of this, right? I'm glad I'm glad you agree. <laughs> um, but you mentioned treatment and, you know, personality disorders are particularly difficult to to treat. And the and I and I have not um, treated schizotypal personality disorder. Um, but the the common narrative uh, for personality disorders, disorders in general, but most treatments is a combination of psychotherapy and medication. So uh, if you're looking at physical symptoms um, in terms of movement or mood expression, um, then medication can help with those things, right? Uh, with mood stability uh, and physical functioning. And then if you're thinking about things like, okay, this person has a hard time with socializing, then we're going to use psychotherapy to help give them some skills uh, that they can use to socialize. Um, or maybe we're going to interact with trying to help them restructure the way that they think so that it's less eccentric um, and more manageable for them in day-to-day life. Um, And that's where the psychotherapy aspect would come in. Well, the next story that we're going to talk about is going to let us, I think, talk a lot more actually about treatment because the the frolic by Thomas Ligotti focuses, in fact, less on the, the, the patient here than it does actually on the mental health care practitioner. Uh, so I'm looking forward to, to jumping into that. Are you ready ready to get there? Oh, yeah. Well, and this story is 
80 years later, right? This was published in 1986. And I'll just do a real quick synopsis here to get us all on the same page. So the frolic takes place entirely in the affluent suburban home of Dr. Monk, who has recently moved to this location in order to take a job as a psychologist at the state prison. And Dr. Monk talks with his wife about his new job and especially about why he hates it and why he wants to quit. And so we get here a lot of interesting information about the mental health profession or, you know, I guess we should say at least as it exists in the world of this story or as Thomas Ligotti understands it. But the plot of the story hinges on Dr. Monk's interactions with just one patient. This is a patient who doesn't have a name and therefore goes by John Doe. And John Doe is in prison because of a series of child murders that he committed. So he's not a sympathetic character to begin with, uh, maybe in the way that, that Jones actually is. But even on top of this, John Doe simply has no remorse for his actions and, in fact, continues to delight in them. He calls them frolics, and he even seems perfectly content, actually, to be in prison, in fact, happy to be in prison in some way. And the weird fiction angle of this story, right, is that he claims to be from another world. He uses a lot of classic Lovecraftian language to describe that world. And what this means for us, the readers, is that we suspect that maybe that's true, though it, it is ambiguous in the end. And really, maybe it's also irrelevant in the end, because the story resolves with Dr. Monk and his wife gradually realizing that there's a window open upstairs, and they rush up to the second floor of their home to check on their young daughter, and she's gone. And on her bed is a note from John Doe, who has taken her and almost certainly murdered her. Not a pleasant story, right? This is the exact opposite of anything that you would ever actually uh, go to, any type of uh, of reading or storytelling that you would ever actually go to, Valerie. But there's some interesting stuff here. We can maybe start with a, a diagnosis of John Doe, though I think that's actually the the less the the less interesting part of the the story. But one of the things that really struck me here is that Dr. Monk uses the word psychopath several times to describe John Doe. We've talked about that word already. And maybe we can start by talking about, you know, whether that's a useful label and, and whether it really would apply here. The question of psychopathy is actually a very interested one. So I'm going to start maybe from the, the diagnostic perspective um, and say that while there may be other things going on with this person, there may be, as I discussed before, comorbidities um, or lots of other things that I don't know. Uh, we are talking about a serial killer here. Uh, and from what we know about the diagnoses of a lot of serial killers um, and also just what we learn about this person in the story, it's pretty likely that they might be diagnosed with something called antisocial personality disorder. So again, we're in the personality disorder chapter of the diagnostic manual. Um, have you heard of antisocial personality disorder before, Glenn? So I've heard the term before, but I don't know what it means, certainly not from a clinical standpoint. Yeah. So let me just tell you what the what the criteria are. So failure to conform to social norms with respect to lawful behaviors as indicated by repeatedly performing acts that are grounds for arrest. We have a person who is incarcerated, so I think that one checks out. Deceitfulness as indicated by repeated lying, use of aliases, or conning others for personal profit or pleasure. And this comes up a lot in the story. This person won't give a name, puts on multiple voices, multiple characters, and the psychologist in the story often feels as if he is being 
mocked. Would you agree? Oh, yeah, we definitely see that. Um, impulsivity or failure to plan ahead. We don't know too much about that. Um, irritability and aggressiveness is indicated by repeated physical fights or assaults. We don't know too much about that. Reckless disregard for the safety of self or others. That one feels pretty clear. Consistent irresponsibility as indicated by repeated failure to sustain consistent work behavior. We don't know that one. And then a lack of remorse. This is one that's often cited. Uh, a lack of remorse as indicated by being indifferent to or rationalizing having hurt, mistreated, or stolen from another. Yeah, we definitely see that for sure. So the the things that we see a lot in this story are the pleasure, at least the pleasure that the psychologist believes this this John Doe is taking um, from not only messing with the doctor, but uh, from having committed these murders. Um, and I think it, that lack of of pleasure can lead directly to, you know, lack of remorse. So that's being able to say that there's a lack of, of, of remorse here. Um, and maybe even some impulsivity. We don't know how, how much John Doe planned ahead what he was going to do to their daughter, but it did have a, an air of that it could have been uh, impulsive, right? That he said this to the doctor in the interview uh, that they had had that day and then got an idea and followed through on it. That was definitely my sense of it. I mean, we, we don't maybe have the clearest picture of what the, the timeline is, but my sense was that he was relating a conversation that had happened earlier that day. And now tonight he has broken out of prison and has taken this little girl. His name is, is Norlean. So that seems certainly quite impulsive. So then the question of psychopathy is quite interesting. So only a small percentage of people with antisocial personality disorder would also be classified as psychopaths. Um, and, psychopath or psychopathy is not in the in the diagnostic manual but there is a psychopathy checklist um that is used you know so an actual some sort of clinical measure that is used to determine whether or not we might call someone a psychopath um but it's important to note that it, it doesn't exist in like the the mental health manual um and is often used uh in in criminal cases um, and cases of legality, um, and here it's it's pretty important to also maybe just dis- draw the distinction that colloquially, psychopath, sociopath, and antisocial personality disorder are thought of as the same. Um, but sociopath is just there's no checklist for that. That's not a clinical word at all. Um, and then psychopath is typically a more violent and small subset of people who live with antisocial personality disorder. And how many items on this checklist then should we check off for John Doe? Well, I don't actually have the the hair psychopathy checklist uh, revised in front of me, <laughs> um, but I will say that it it covers like some of the the same key areas of antisocial personality disorder. So that you are superficial, grandiose, deceitful, lacking in remorse, um, you know. And then these other things that we don't get to know about this character, like what their goals are in life and and how responsible they are. Um, Clearly, they they lack empathy as well. Um, but there's some interesting things that come out of the the checklist as well. Like how how charming or glib is this person? Um, and I do get a little bit of sense that there's something charming about John Doe, and I think we get that sense because the doctor can't stop thinking about him. Right. He certainly has a high verbal acuity. He 
speaks quite well, right? He he addresses Dr. Monk. He seems to to know things about Dr. Monk, right? To to tailor the conversation to his audience. And yes, you're absolutely right. Dr. Monk cannot stop thinking about this patient who is just one of many patients he has here at the the at the prison. So I I yeah, I could see some some charisma, some charm here. Yeah, so I I don't have access to the scale for this at the moment, so I'm going to I'm going to do the ethical thing um and say I don't know, but it, but it it appears that that uh he would check off quite a few things on the checklist were it to were he to be given the assessment. And if you are interested in this uh and want to ruin your day, um something that we also had to do in school to kind of understand this point or get a picture of of what someone like this might sound like or look like um, or, you know, show up in the room as, right? Because we can read a bunch of criteria in a book, but often these things have a particular feel to them. You could say like, oh, somebody's affect is like less emotionally expressive. It's like, okay, well, what does that actually look like? What does it feel like when you're talking to that person, right? Um, so sometimes we would we would watch videos of things um, and I believe we were shown an interview with Jeffrey Dahmer um, when we were learning about this in school. And there are quite a few interviews with serial killers available on the internet. Um, So if that's a thing you're interested in, uh, you you can look it up. Um, I find it very, very disturbing and unpleasant. Yeah, I'll say right now that I won't be doing that. But if listeners do that and want to come to the forum and uh, and uh, talk with us about that, uh, I, I can I can take one for the team and and, uh, and go check that out. Well, let's let's shift gears here because I actually think that Doctor Monk is the more interesting character in this story than John Doe him himself. And I, I have you know some maybe some specific questions about Doctor Monk as a depiction of uh, someone who works in mental health. And the thing that really strikes me here about Dr. Monk is that he is really unhappy and really unhappy, at least in part, I think in large part because of his job. And is that something that is common? Oh, <laughs> what a question. Yeah, how is you it doing? common for a mental health professional to be unhappy because of their job? <laughs> um, oh, okay. That's a big one. Okay. I'm going to try to nuance it a little bit. Uh, so that. So, so there are like we have words for this uh, that are that are broken down that aren't just unhappy. Um, but let me start broadly with that you are affected by interacting with people who are not well. Um, of course. Uh, so one word that we have for this is burnout. Basically, it's just like really exhausting to do this kind of work, um, and and we're typically not paid well for it. And we we have cases that are too full, um, and we don't have enough restorative time, um, all of which can lead to burnout that is often marked by like dreading having to go into work, dreading having to see your clients who you are meant to help. Um, And we definitely get an aspect of that in the story here. Um, Similar to that, we have something called compassion fatigue, which is basically what it sounds like. You just, it becomes harder and harder to have empathy because you are burnt out. And then there's also something called um, vicarious trauma, uh, which is basically that if you are working with people that have been traumatized or have done traumatic things, that by virtue of spending so much time sitting with them, you absorb some of that trauma. And, you know, so maybe you are working with somebody who um, was pushed in front of a car and then it becomes very difficult for you to be around cars. You become very afraid that you're going to get pushed in front of a car yourself. Um, you have absorbed some of that trauma. So these are all different words that we have basically to explain the phenomenon that 
we sit with other people's emotions and try to empathize with them and understand them and by virtue of that absorb them a little bit um and if you are not given the resources time uh or training to learn how to separate that time at work with a person from the rest of your life it can be very difficult well one of the things that really jumps out here about dr monk is that maybe he's not actually dealing with this all that well uh, to begin with he actually quite a bit like jones maybe doesn't seem to have a whole lot in his life except that he's got a, a wife and a child and really the whole gimmick of this story is that he's having a drink and it's really kind of talking at his wife more than anything else almost using her in a way to to voice his concerns his and anxieties from the from this job this maybe doesn't seem to be the best way to go about decompressing from this stressful job so what are ways that people actually do this so that they can go back to to work Oh god, great question. You know, I think there are a couple of things in in this story. I didn't like this story. <laughs> Let me just <laughs> this story bugged me. Um for for a lot of reasons. Uh one is that I think that it um depicts mental health and depicts um the incarcerated and justice involved population quite negatively. Like I I mean most of what I wanted to do was talk about how I didn't like the way that prisons were, were were talked about in this story. Um, and so there's like so many larger cultural um, discussions that we could have about that. And the the doctor does not come off as a likable character. He He's not, he doesn't have empathy for the people he's working with. He doesn't seem to have empathy or interest in his wife. Um, he doesn't seem to really talk to him, to talk to her or anyone else all that kindly he's very judgmental of everybody else that he works with he started having these like intense judgments and criticisms of basically everybody at his job um he's curmudgeonly and and i would probably say yeah unhappy um but that being said i, I do have friends who work as psychologists in prisons um who aren't like this, um, to my knowledge, but I, I am not, I have not done that work. I have not done, um, work with this type of individual in this setting. I have worked in courts, um, with victims and perpetrators of domestic violence. Um, but I can't personally speak to what it is like to do this kind of a job where there's a criminality involved and, and sometimes also persistent mental illness. Um, so it just feels really important to say I haven't lived this and I don't want to in any way give an indication that I can talk about what it would be like. You're right. There's a whole lot going on with Dr. Monk here. I mean, to start with, it almost doesn't really seem like maybe this was the best career choice for him. And in fact, I'd say that's actually a big part of what Legati is doing here is uh, taking something that's a, a pretty important strand in 20th century American literature, which is to explore the darkness inside these affluent homes in the suburbs and expose that a little bit to expose that in fact even though people have all this material wealth this affluence that there there are things that they are unhappy about and that their personal lives maybe and, and in particular their relationships and their marriages aren't that great and he's transposing that onto a weird fiction story here and and that's what we're what we're getting and, but of course dr monk also he's his reaction to this is is to want to 
quit this job and to move away from this community. So it doesn't seem like this was maybe something that was a, a good career choice for him to begin with. Yeah, and there's this one interesting line, too, where he's like, oh, I was I was tired of just helping the neurotic people in the city. I wanted to, to do real good work and really help people. That's like a little bit of a savior complex um, that, that can happen sometimes um, when it, without, it sounds like this character, without the forethought of what this life might actually be like and how he maybe needed to set up structures in his life to to be able to, to do the work. Um, to have some forethought about how to, as you asked, take take care of himself, which is a very difficult thing to do. And and everybody does it differently. Um, but one of the major things is is having your own help and support, whether that's in, you know, friends, family, loved ones, your own therapist, excellent supervision. So somebody at work who's helping you with these cases and helping you compartmentalize and and offer you perspective about how the work is going. Those things are all really important. And as you can imagine, not everybody has a good boss. Not everybody has that support. Not everybody has that many friends, especially if they're in a small town that they just moved to with their wife that they don't seem to like that much. So if those things are lacking in your life, it can be really difficult to to stay afloat. And then past that, it's like doing your best at work and then knowing that who you are at work is separate from who you are, that you can only do the best you can in the 45 minutes or a couple hours you have with someone uh, and then attempting to kind of break back off into your regular life and do the things that that make you you. Yeah, I can't really imagine what that would be like. I have a hard enough time doing this just with with teaching, right? With coming home from the classroom and uh, shutting off my concerns for students, concerns about students and how well they're doing in the class. I can't imagine doing this in a situation where the stakes are significantly higher and, and the stressors significantly greater as as well. Uh, but I think it was important to talk about this story because this is the, the only one that we've done so far that actually really depicts this from the other side, though this is actually a pretty big strand in weird fiction. So I don't know, maybe if we do a part two to this at some point, if someone wants us to, uh, we'll have some more stories under our belt and get a chance to take a look uh, maybe in more detail at a, a story that really shows us perhaps uh, some some other elements of working in mental health care. Uh, if one thing is clear, it's that like this doctor is not doing having an easy time of taking care of himself and of separating his work from his personhood. And your, your comparison to teaching is, is really on point. Um, I went from one job where it's really where you're, where you're personal identity is wrapped up in your work to another job where your personal identity is wrapped up in your work um, and where there's care and concern for other people, right? And there's a sense in which you are responsible for them. Um, but maybe to use the teaching comparison, it's like, okay, I, I have to show up and I have to do my best to like make this learning accessible and present the information and and be available to help them with writing when they need it. But like, I can't write the paper for them. I can't make them come to class can't make them be interested in the material, right? Like that there, there is a line between the responsibility the student has or maybe even responsibility is the wrong word. You know, someone else has to do something for you to be effective at what you're doing, right? It's a collaboration. Um, but it's the type of work where you can feel entirely accountable and forget that it has to be a collaboration. 
And one other thing that is worth pointing out in this story is that the doctor should not be telling these things to his wife. This is incredibly confidential information um, about a real person uh, whose privacy is protected by codes of ethics. Um, (laughs) We should not know this. His wife should not know this. That feels very important to say. Um, but uh, though I understand the impulse to, to want to talk about it. But really, just for this whole episode, I want to reiterate a disclaimer that is don't do don't do this at home, kids. Don't diagnose other people uh, who you haven't met and don't know anything about. Uh, don't diagnose yourself. Really, don't go out and buy a DSM because you will have the impulse to diagnose yourself and, and everyone you know, uh, which is the the particular form of madness that comes from first learning about all these things as you go through it and you begin to diagnose yourself (laughs) and everyone you know and you really have to stop yourself it's dangerous it's unethical it's unhelpful don't do it kids (laughs) <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, when I was in undergrad, I, I had to take uh, the sort of basic level psychology course, uh, not for my major, but in order to get a uh, public high school teaching certificate in the state of Illinois. And I took this class with a retired Chicago police homicide detective. Oh, God. Uh, who, who was, you know, in his retirement teaching psychology part time. He had, you know, a PhD in psychology. But he told us his story, I think, you know, maybe before class was getting started. Of course, you know, I'm that dutiful student who's always there 15 minutes early uh, about how he was also that semester teaching a class on these types of disorders. I don't remember what that class was was properly called, but he did say that one of his favorite things about teaching that class was watching his students develop these things or think that they've developed them, start to diagnose themselves as they meet new conditions, as they're introduced to new disorders, they start to think they have all of them. Uh, the fact that he got some joy out of that maybe, <laughs> maybe should have been a caution, but uh, uh, but that was uh, that's, that's one of my uh, cl- clearest memories of my undergraduate years, I will say. It's such a common, it's such a common experience. And even when I was working in college counseling, this I would have a lot of uh, clients who were studying psychology at, rather either as their major or, you know, they were taking some sort of introductory class and they would come in and be like, I I read about this thing last week and I'm pretty sure I have it. And, you know, then the duty is to be like, okay, probably not, but like, I will take it at face value. Why do you think so? And like, you know, conduct an assessment. Um, But I remember when I was first taking this class, the professor put up a slide that was basically do not diagnose yourself. Do not diagnose your friends and family and loved ones. You will be tempted to do this. Do not do it. Maybe it's okay to diagnose your exes. <laughs> well, yeah, that just seems like a solid advice. <laughs> well, I think before we start diagnosing ourselves, or even worse, before we start diagnosing each other, I think that is going to do it for this episode. I'm Glenn McDorman. And I'm still not Brandon Buddha. I'm Valerie Hoagland, and you can find us and our other creative projects, as always, at claytemplemedia.com. And if you would like to hear more of Valerie, you should check us out on Lower Decks. Uh, You don't actually have to be watching along with us to get something out of our Star Trek conversations. And if you enjoyed this diversion of a bonus episode, and if you've got some ideas for special topics or even specific stories that you would like us to cover, please let us know. We'd, We'd love to talk with you about commissioning an episode. And next time, uh, we'll be back with, I, I always do this on these bonus episodes. I never know what actually will air after this goes out. So I'll have to re-record this. But until then, we greet you and say farewell. And I think we can't finish the sign-off without my lower deck sign-off. That makes absolutely no sense in this context. But stay spacey. <laughs> <laughs>